0: Even a business as old-fashioned as Iceland can encourage more flexi-working as well. Any person can look happier from the outside. And uh, of course, we're all subject to doubts and imposter syndrome. And Retail can be quite an old-fashioned industry. We need to keep investing in our culture, our people and innovation. Scientists have repeatedly warned us we've got 10 years left to save the planet.
1: Hello and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take To get happier. Hello, on this edition of the Work of Workplace Happiness podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Walker. Now, many of you will know Iceland Foods. You'll know it uh, as a fantastic food business with great ethical credentials. And Richard uh, is now the managing director. He runs that business. Um, And his story with the business started a long time ago, as he'll tell us shortly. But not only does he run a huge business, He's also an author. He's just written a book called The Green Grocer, which is all about his ethical beliefs and the beliefs of the company that he runs. And we'll get to talk to him about that. But Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think that everybody will want to know how this all started out uh, for you, because... You're now running a huge business, four billion pounds of turnover, tens of thousands of people working in the business, lots of different formats operating internationally. So tell me where it all started. Tell me where your connection with Iceland started from and how you started to um, develop your feelings about the environment and all the other things that you've now become famous for?
0: Yeah, I've got I've got a long association with ISOM because it was a business that was founded 51 years ago by my mum, who thought of the name, and my dad. My dad is uh, very much the kind of talismanic figurehead of the business and has, has uh, led the, the business over half a century uh, through many ups and downs. So it was all, always something that um, I'd grown up with, listening to stories around the kitchen table from mum and dad in terms of uh, the swashbuckling entrepreneurship that comes with, with growing uh, a business. And it was a, a public company. It was a private company. Dad was kicked out for a period of time and then came back in. And um, so it was always part of my life, but it was never anything that we ever discussed me going into. It was never really on the cards. It was always a business that dad happened to be the boss of. But I was very keen to plow my own furrow. And when I left university in 2001, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I was absolutely adamant that I didn't want to try and emulate my dad. Um, It would have been a disaster. So I did my own thing. And after a bit of traveling, I I qualified as a chartered surveyor and I worked for Jones Lang LaSalle in London um, and I was doing uh, office investments in the West End. Uh, And then I moved to Poland and and set up a property company with backing from Lehman Brothers of of all outfits. Um, And that was obviously a a very steep learning curve because we were hit by the financial crisis. We managed to um, stay safe, get through it, extricate ourselves from the Lehman relationship um, and actually get out of it the other side. And and we grew a a big portfolio out there of office and retail property. And and then ultimately we, we sold it. Um, But there were a lot of hard knocks, and I think being in a different country where no one knew who I was, no one had ever heard of Iceland, it it was very important to me to sort of build my own confidence, uh, but also to prove it to other people as well, to to prove that I could succeed in business on my own account. moved back to London in 2009, and then... um, Bywater Properties, uh, the the eventual kind of amalgamation of property businesses, is still growing strong. And I'm chairman of that business and very proud of what they've achieved. They have a commercial property portfolio now uh, valued at over uh, 250 million quid. And they're doing really well. They have more outside investors. Um, But uh, in 2012, I, I approached Dad. he just bought the business private with a consortium. And once again, it felt like a family business. And by that time I was in my 30s, I felt like um, I'd had enough experience under my belt and I surprised him. And I said, I want to give uh, Iceland a go. And he said in his usual Yorkshire straight talking manner, don't bother, collect rents. It's a much easier life than retail, which obviously you'll you'll know well, Mark, having um, been at the sharp end of it with Waitrose for so many years. But I did it and uh, spent a year stacking shelves in in our London stores, driving the van on the checkouts and ultimately working my way up to store manager. And it was an amazing year. Very humbling when you appreciate how hard our our staff work and and also essential to learn about the nuts and bolts of the business. And then I moved up to head office. I've had various roles since and um, now I'm managing director and importantly also oversee all of our sustainability work, which as you referenced is something that's very important to me.
1: And so let's go back to your early years and you were saying that you didn't necessarily think that you would go into the, the family food business. So what did you think you might do? I didn't know. I just, I didn't
0: want to sell frozen peas for a living. <laughs> and I was very clear that trying to emulate this amazing legacy and, and um, you know, Dad has got very big shoes to fill, and I think I didn't have the confidence or experience. And I'm so glad I did my own thing and lived abroad. Actually, that was really, really uh, tough, but important experience, and learned a lot. I did settle finally on commercial property because um, it seemed to me a very personal, people-led industry. I really enjoyed getting out there and meeting different agents and working with uh, fund managers to build their portfolios. So it was actually an industry I was very well suited to. And in some ways I miss it. It is, however, the exact opposite of retail. If you think of Iceland, 5 million customers a week, uh, billions of units of products sold every year, very high volume, very fast paced. Property is the opposite. It can take 10 years to get a development scheme off the ground and you have endless machinations and discussions around a scheme and who to bring in and how to bring it to life. Um, so there are pros and cons of both industries, but it's great to have experienced both both polar opposites. Did you yeah, always think
1: you'd go into business?
0: I did. I did. I, I I always could see the the sense of excitement that came from it, and also the sense of purpose in terms of creating and growing something. So I always had that entrepreneurial bug, and I suppose that's inevitable when, like I say, you sit around the dining table and you hear stories of of Iceland. So I was always very keen to, to be in business and never really thought about anything else. At the same time, and, and- however, I, we grew up in the country and I had a sort of deep love of the natural world. Um, Dad has been a long time Greenpeace member and uh, did lead some, some pretty impressive campaigns back in the day on removing genetically modified foods from our own label products. He coined the phrase Frankenstein foods. And and that always uh, pointed the direction for me as well. We grew up in the countryside. I I loved nothing more than getting out and going for long walks. And I think that's evolved over years. I'm now a very passionate climber and surfer. I've been on expeditions on the other side of the world, surfing waves and climbing unclimbed mountains in weird and wonderful places around the world. And I think that's given me a, a really deep love and fascination for the natural world and also a sense of purpose to try and do everything I can to protect it. And that's even more so now I'm dad to two beautiful girls who love nothing more than getting out on their doorsteps and looking at the bees and butterflies. And they have that innate fascination. And I want to try and protect what they love as well. So really, it was a penny drop moment for me that I'm ridiculously fortunate and lucky to be in the position I'm in. And Iceland is now a private family business and actually a platform to try and drive change on some of these big existential issues that I really care about. And I think our customers do as
1: well. And it seems like a very happy marriage that you get to run a fantastically entrepreneurial business and you get to um, have that sense of purpose about things that you feel passionately about. And of course, that I'm assuming is what led you to write your book, The Green Grocer, which has just been released to great critical acclaim. So so tell us a bit about the book and, and use that as a way to talk about your beliefs about the environment.
0: Yeah, I wanted to uh, write the book, coming at it, you know, as an outdoor enthusiast, like I say, a climber and surfer, but also realising that Iceland were a huge part of the problem. And, and, and so therefore was I, but actually that I had something to offer in terms of trying to come up with solutions. So it does look uh, quite heavily in the initial chapters about Iceland and what we've done. Um, I look at our campaigns on palm oil, uh, on, on uh, our plastic elimination journey, carbon, food waste, etc., but it's actually not a book about Iceland and um, it's a wider look at business and how business needs to step up and take a multi-stakeholder approach and go beyond the Friedman doctrine of short-term profits and, and look at all of society's uh, stakeholders. So I wanted to write it as a player and not a commentator, you know, using lessons from the shop floor, um, but ultimately you know, I do talk about the scale of the environmental emergency we face in terms of carbon and also nature's destruction. I talk about the, the deeply ingrained levels of social inequality that we face that I see every day because Iceland overlays uh, almost exactly with the government's areas of high deprivation. Um, and we serve the poorest communities around the UK. And I wanted to try and marry those two issues up and come up with a pragmatic, proactive roadmap in terms of how business can step up and tackle some of these big issues everyone knows why we need to change because the planet's warming and we're going to be in trouble if we don't do something urgently we even now agree on what we need to do we need to draw down carbon and restore nature but how to do it is the really tricky bit and not many people can show a roadmap in terms of how because how involves as you will well know uh, from your time running waitrose it, it involves Hard choices and trade-offs and ambiguity and jeopardy and contradiction and at every turn there are these hard choices and I wanted to shine a light on uh, how business can be a delivery partner um, and also that no business is too small. 90% of the world economy is small businesses so yes we, we run a four billion pound business but I actually look at how any business any shape or size can, can actually take up uh, an action. And the ultimate message I think is don't be afraid to try. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, Don't wait around for everything to be exactly as you want it. Um, Step up and take action now. And it's about democratizing sustainability, making all of these issues relevant and relatable to real people, Um, because I think that's the only way we're going to scale up and progress these issues. And then the final chapter is looking at what government needs to do, what policies and frameworks government can put in place uh, to enable the market uh, to take more rapid, urgent action.
1: And for those people who might not know, just talk through some of the campaigns uh, and some of the initiatives you've been running at Iceland to make a difference.
0: Yeah, well, um, at the start of 2018, we pledged to be the first retailer anywhere in the world to fully eliminate plastic from our own label packaging. Now, there were a lot of raised eyebrows at the time. Um, A lot of people said it's impossible. A lot of people still say it's impossible. But we wanted to throw down the gauntlet and set a clear goal. And I don't care that it's impossible. So was removing genetically modified foods 20 years ago. So was removing palm oil. Um, We're actually making fantastic progress. We've reduced tonnage by 50% over the last three years. Obviously that was the easiest 50% and now the hard yards really start. But what's heartening is I like to believe that we kickstarted a, a range of action from industry and really got the focus onto plastic reduction and elimination because there was a um, misdirection in terms of the narrative that was all about recycling. We can solve the plastic crisis by recycling more but actually I passionately believe that we need to uh, produce less of the stuff That's the only way we're gonna turn the tide on plastic. And um, I could see the problem getting worse and worse as a surfer in the oceans and the beaches all around the world. and knew that the UK supermarket sector had an opportunity to do that. So we're on that journey. We've got a few years left, I'm determined to get there. Of course I have sleepless nights about it, but um, it's uh, about trialing and testing and never giving up and iterating. And then the, perhaps the other most well-known uh, campaign over recent years was on palm oil, where again, we were the first retailer to, to get out of it uh, completely in our own label range. And, and this was a really interesting journey that took me way beyond the boardroom and the shop floor out to Indonesia to the vast palm monocultures of West Kalimantan. And uh, I saw the devastation that was being wreaked uh, with my own eyes and how the primary rainforest there The crown jewels of the global biodiversity were being destroyed, all for palm oil that ends up in biscuits and cake and chocolate. Um, It was a very controversial campaign. There's pros and cons to the arguments, um, but if nothing else, we really raised the discussion. Google searches of the phrase "palm oil" went up 10,000 percent after our campaign, and it was all about shining light on this urgent, critical issue that's leaving the likes of the orangutan critically endangered in the wild. And so I. I think our campaign really raised awareness on that issue as well.
1: And when people read your book, The Green Grocer, what do you hope it will, or how do you hope it will affect them? Um, I
0: I suppose, um, you know, as a business leader or CSR professional or a manager, or indeed anyone who works for a business, large or small, like I say, don't be afraid to try. And uh, it's about taking action. And I look at a whole host of, of ways of how business can do that and um, so and i hope ultimately it's a really um a, a really optimistic uh, book yes we're fe- facing seemingly uh, irreversible unstoppable problems but actually if you look at the wave of action now from around the world not just from business with net zero um uh, targets and pledges to restore nature and draw down carbon and everything else in between but actually from governments Uh, Today is Earth Day. Joe Biden has has just said that America will halve its carbon emissions by 2030. Um, And that's the sort of scale of ambition that we need. We now have the likes of China um, saying that they will be net zero by 2060. And then, of course, in the UK, we have our own world leading pledges by the current government with a detailed blueprint, blueprint in terms of how we're going to get there. So I think we're seeing action not just from business, but from the public sector as well And of course, by citizens, we've got kids around the world striking from schools, we've got uh, communities all around the world um, uh, declaring climate emergencies and demanding more, not just from their politicians, but from business leaders as well. And I think the sort of key to 21st century business, and and you'll know a lot about this, given the, the work you've done and the books you've written, is about listening and it's about empathetic leadership. Um, and I think that's the only way that businesses will survive going forward um, because consumers demand more from their business leaders than perhaps they did even 10 years ago.
1: So, Richard, going back to your career, um, it's clear that as well as developing a very successful property business and living abroad, when you went into Iceland, you started at the bottom and you worked your way up. So tell us why you think that's important to understand all those roles moving through a retail business. I think it was
0: it was important on many levels, um, perhaps more so for me as the boss's son. And let's face it, you know, um, some people um, m- may think I've had an easy ride through the company. And therefore I think it was really important to show that um, I can get stuck in. And obviously, You know, people knew who I was when I turned up. I didn't want to keep it a secret from them. And it was awkward for maybe perhaps an hour, but the moment you get your sleeves rolled up and get stuck in, um, I think you just very quickly become one of the team. Um, So on one level, it was about earning respect in the organization. On another level, it was about learning the nuts and bolts of retail from the shop floor. And too often in retail, but actually in any business, uh, you know, ideas and commands are beamed down from upon high, and actually there needs to be more of an appreciation of of what that means on the ground. So I think understanding the reality on the ground was was absolutely critical uh, to to learn about the business from from the bottom up, but from the people that really make it happen. And finally, it was just a very humbling experience. People um, work exceptionally hard in retail. Sometimes it's tough hours sometimes it's long hours, and sometimes you have to face unpleasant shoplifters um, or, or, um, or, or customer abuse. And I think you know an appreciation for that makes me very humble, clearly as someone who owes his life and his lifestyle to the success of the business. That all comes from our frontline colleagues, and especially through COVID, they've been nothing short of heroic.
1: And um, just thinking about those various jobs, because you started in London on the shop floor, um what do you remember about those experiences what did you learn from the managers that you worked for and with
0: there was obviously the the kind of um nitty-gritty operations of of how to run a shop which for me was eye-opening because although I'd grown up with the business I still sort of thought that retail merely consisted of plonking something on a shelf and waiting for it to sell And of course, it's a vast cocktail of many different things, um, from consumer psychology to marketing to planograms uh, to getting things at the right price. Um, uh, So understanding all of those working parts was, of course, critical. But I think what I learned most was leadership lessons, even though we're a centrally controlled price file, which for the non-retailers out there means that um, we determine all of the sell prices um, and it, even down to where products go on the shelf. A manager actually um, has fairly limited commercial independence in Iceland because we have we have almost a thousand stores. So we have to run everything um, as one business. Um, they can decide certain uh, elements and have freedom within a framework. But actually it, it is fairly limited. And yet a good manager, my dad always says, can put 20 percent on the sales line. And they do that through the power of leadership. And that comes through motivating and inspiring a team. And Simon Felstead, I was with him yesterday. He's our manager currently in North End Road in Fulham. He's one of the best managers we've got in the business. And I learned a lot of leadership lessons from him. How to galvanize a team uh, and create that shared sense of purpose uh, was nothing short of invaluable. Certainly every business leader, I think, should uh, go back to the shop floor Uh, for a period of time and actually every politician because our shops are the perfect barometer of Britain Um, and uh, I think you know we we see it all through our daily course of business.
1: For those people listening, uh, based on your enormous experience, what would be your top three leadership tips? What have you learned that's most important about being a successful leader? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, you've set me up there, An enormous experience, and so now I can't think of them. I'm always terrible at these questions. <laughs> but I think, that first and foremost, the, the key thing, and what I try and get across in the book, is um, it's about listening. Taking the trouble to, to get out of the boardroom and uh, taking the trouble to ask people. And of course, listen to them as well. Um, I think you know, a, a lot of the experts aren't the establishment. Uh, they're not the establishment voices And uh, a lot of the solutions that we need uh, come from people with their daily lived experience, our customers, our frontline colleagues. um, And and the absolute key uh, to business success in the future is going to be about business leaders um, listening a lot more. So it would certainly be be around that.
1: You've said it already, and it strikes me that you seem incredibly happy doing what you're doing. It it obviously... Uh, plays well to your entrepreneurial skills, your management skills, your business skills, but also you've got a real purpose in what you're doing in that you're not only feeding people, you're also taking care of communities and you're taking care of the planet. So I know that um, you've taken the workplace happiness test. Tell me, in in taking that, in which areas did it strike you you were most and least happy in your working life? Well, it's really interesting because I think...
0: um any any person can look happier from the outside. And uh, of course, we're all subject to doubts and imposter syndrome and um, we all question what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think the other reason for writing the book was to show the many failings that we've had along the way, the many mistakes and the realities uh, from the inside. Iceland is not in perfect lockstep as an organization. I have daily rows with our finance departments about the initiatives we're taking um, and actually the reality from the inside is sometimes different to how people perceive it to be on the outside. I think it's really important to be honest about that and uh, you know that, that does lead you to, um, to to question sometimes how you're doing things and why you're doing it. But I think the happiness survey was, was quite interesting actually. It gives you pause for thought. Clearly I do have an absolute sense of purpose in terms of doing what I'm doing. But I always have to temper that because at the end of the day, we're not an NGO and um, we're in business to turn a profit. And it's that age old conundrum of does profit come first or purpose? And as my dad constantly reminds me, stop saving the world and get in the shops. Um, So we we have that kind of um, tension if you like. Um, And I don't think I've quite found the perfect balance with it. Um, so I suppose, you know, a, a lot of my um, uh, a lot of my kind of doubts or concerns <laughs> would come around just in the day to day, the 90 percent of the job, which is about shopkeeping.
1: And, and tell me what what would make you happier at work if you had a magic wand?
0: It may sound odd me saying this because I'm the MD, but, um, you know, I've inherited a culture. We're 50 years old. We have, an, um, we have two cultures in this business. We have an amazing frontline um, colleague community. Who are almost 30,000 people. And then we have our um, field team and our head office. It's about eight, nine hundred people in that bracket, maybe a thousand. I would like to see a more modern approach to working. And I suppose that's my job um, to encourage that. But retail can be quite an old fashioned industry. And sometimes it can be so action orientated that we forget about the important stuff, about uh, uh, listening and having a sense of fun and allowing people flexibility as well. And I do look at some of the newer, more modern internet startup businesses that have embraced more flexible working hours, working from home. I hope COVID, um, one of the silver linings of the terrible pandemic will be that even a business as old fashioned as Iceland can encourage more flexi working as well. Um, and we don't all have to sit in the head office. Um, so I think, a, you know, a more modern approach, more modern working environments, more flexibility um, is, is key for any business and particularly ours.
1: And, and where do you see Iceland and, and you yourself in 10 years from now, Richard? What's your ambition for this decade?
0: You know, on one level, we, we need to keep the business profitable and we need to keep the business growing. Because um, if, if you don't grow, you die in business. Uh, that's the reality. Um, so we're constantly uh, trialing new formats. Uh, we've just launched a convenience uh, a shop to see how that goes. It's called Swift. And maybe we'll have many Swifts in the future. Um, tiny shops where you can drop in and, and buy uh, lottery tickets and newspapers and flowers. Um, and, uh, you know, just like a normal corner shop. We have our food warehouse offering, which is larger format stores on retail parks. And then, of course, we have the traditional Iceland high street business. And that's all overlaid with a very rapidly growing online business. So I hope all of those elements continue to grow. We're certainly in a good place. We're one of the fastest growing retailers at the moment. And I think we need to keep investing in our culture, our people and innovation and uh, keep that kind of relentless paranoia that it all might end tomorrow, which keeps us focused on the business and focused on trialing and testing new things. And that's important because we have 30,000 people that Uh, require us to do well because they depend on us for a paycheck each week and you know that does weigh on my shoulders that uh, everything we need to we do needs to be balanced with business success because we have a lot of communities relying on us to provide the best quality food at the cheapest possible price and also uh, colleagues who rely on us to do well Um, and then of course in talking looking to the next 10 years this has to be the decade of action in terms of the environmental emergency uh, scientists have repeatedly warned us we've got 10 years left to save the planet and um, so uh, you know we we need to speed up action from government but also from corporates and I very much hope that Iceland will play a role in that and, and be leading the charge on many more environmental ishi- initiatives as well.
1: And, and two quick questions uh, if I can finally. Um, the first is um, if you were to think of somebody that you would like to sit down and take the um, the workplace happiness survey uh, and reflect on what it's saying about them. Who who would you um who would you suggest do it?
0: <laughs> in terms of a business leader, uh, anybody. I'd, I you know I'd be I've always been fascinated by uh, politics and politicians. So actually, I'd be fascinated to know how well, as an organisation, uh, the in, in, inside of government genuinely is. Um, I do talk in the book about how politics actually needs business. Yes, it can become corrosive with excessive corporate lobbying. We have a, a story at the moment in the news about that. But actually, um, business is the delivery partner and business has the pragmatic solutions that politicians need. And I think we need more leadership from outside the political sphere. So I'd love to know what the internal Uh, workings of government look like and perhaps you'll know much more about this than me having sat in the cabinet but how well run as an organisation government is if that's a a concept Um, and also how happy people are Uh, because often you hear a lot of tittle tattle in the press and uh, about backstabbing and politics in politics and I'd be fascinated to know the reality of that.
1: Uh, Well we actually do the the workplace engagement surveys for the the Welsh government and the Scottish government so we've oh, got wow. lots of data on that can i uh, look at it i'd you... love to see it yeah, yeah. well if you if you go to work all the happiest companies or happiest places to work you'll actually see all the governments there you'll see the uk government and parliament uh, and also all the departments so we've got lots of data uh, on that which um, which we, you can have a play we've even got local councils so you can even see at a local government level how uh, happy people are. And and Richard, my, my last question to you is, um, what piece of music, when you hear it, makes you feel happiest of all? Oh,
0: that's a great
1: question. I love the
0: escapism of the Stone Roses, which is quite nostalgic because that shows my age now. But that's, uh, that's a band I grew up listening to uh, over and over again. So um, I like running to that. And whenever I do it, I'm transported to kind of the freedom of being an eighteen-year-old kid again, and uh, all, of, all of all of the happiness that, that that gave. And I actually have, I have to, I owe you two two more answers uh, to the top three things um, yes. about business. I think the first one was about uh, listening and asking. Um, the second one is my dad's phrase, which is "never ever 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 give up," and I think that relentless kind of will to win um is is so important in business because people can fall at the first hurdle and give up and actually it's so important to embrace failure and almost celebrate it and uh, to learn and iterate and keep going and then the final one is to have some fun we're not on this planet very long and we spend a lot of our lives at work and thinking about work so we may as well enjoy it and contribute as best we can and i think actually a sense on fun and happiness, which is why it's great, all the work that you're doing, um, is so important to to organizations as well.
1: Well, Richard, thank you very much indeed for being on this edition of the Work or Workplace Happiness podcast. You've achieved a huge amount already. I would recommend to everybody to read your book, The Green Grocer, and we wish you every success, both in terms of um, Iceland uh, and the work that you're doing to um, make the planet better. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.